I'm Jamie O'Kane, CPA, Small Business Advanced Tax Planning and Compliance Extraordinaire. And this is the Abundant Beans Podcast, the podcast that takes my love for learning what makes people tick while digging into the good, bad, and ugly of small business ownership. We strive to give you the insight that only those in the trenches of being and working with entrepreneurs can provide. All right. So today we're going to welcome to the podcast, Brad Crower. Isn't that right? Yeah, perfect. You did great. <laughs> Call me. Brad is an associate clinical professor of shelter medicine and the director of the shelter medicine program at Kansas State University in the Little Apple, Kansas. His service-based outreach program provides free spay, neuter, medical triage, and management consultation to over 20 regional animal welfare organizations. I cannot read out loud. (laughs) Additionally, bi-monthly wellness vaccine clinics provide care at regional homeless shelters and reservations. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This is exciting. This is, I'm I'm a virgin podcast um, uh, participant right now. So you're, uh, um, uh, you're my first. You know, I, that's actually my favorite. Um, many of our guests have been Virgin podcasters, and um, now some of them started podcasts after they came on mine. So, you know, we'll see. We'll see where it takes you. <laughs> you, know yeah. you know, our goal is always fun. If we don't, you know, if I don't push the stop record button, and you're like, not like Jamie, that was amazingly fun. I will be sad. So just be ready for that. <laughs> So the bar. right, that's the bar. Um, first questions first. What was your first job? Uh, my first job. Oh my gosh. Um, I. It's so hard to tell. So first job. It might have been like my dad signed me up to sell beans to a local grocery store, but I don't know if that is really considered a job. It was more like an inconvenience as a kid. Um, my first job was McDonald's. I, my, I, I had a job at McDonald's, uh, like one of those typical, like, all right, where do I get a job? McDonald's is always hiring. And there we go. We're, we're at a McDonald's along the highway and we got these huge rushes of people coming in. And uh, so yeah, little customer service, a little greasy fries, some fruit cookies on the side and that was my first job I always think any kind of restaurant experience is very important um that's where I learned how to take care of people and multitask and (laughs) deal with not happy people (laughs) well and our assistant manager like this stereotypical any any movie that you watch like that has a fast food uh, component to it. There's that assistant manager that just thinks they're so much more than they are. They're just an assistant manager in, in a fast food place. That was the guy. And it's, it's, it, he was just so uh, consistent with that stereotype that it's, it, it's hard to watch uh, those shows come up because you're like, yeah, I know that guy. You know, I always say we have stereotypes for a reason. <laughs> Right. It's really funny. Um, So you've had an interesting career journey. Can you just give us the quick rundown of your career journey and then we'll dive into the bits and pieces? Yeah, you bet. Um, I I knew at a young age that I wanted to be a veterinarian, or at least I had an interest in animals and just happened to have uh, the persistence and the borderline ability to be able to make that happen. And um, I uh, went to vet school, got into vet school and, and ran a 24-hour facility through vet school. So I worked full-time while I was going to school, managing a emergency hospital. And so I got some background in emergency medicine, um, graduated and um, I'm an Iowa State grad. So I went, I went to Iowa State University and that's where I graduated uh, from veterinary college. Um, but knew I didn't want to stay in the Midwest and uh, moved to Seattle, Washington. A friend of mine worked for Boeing in Seattle, and I fell in love with Seattle. And, and so I moved there at graduation and first was in a 24-hour facility and then transitioned to private practice, ended up um, owning uh, uh, some practices uh, and then selling them to, um, to corporate medicine. And then uh, uh, 
I, I mentioned to you, uh, I was a first responder. I got uh, looped in with a friend um, who worked in animal welfare and was going down to respond to Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans um, right after the hurricane hit and really solicited me and my practice for donations for supplies. And my lead tech wanted to go and uh, I wanted to go. And so we were part of a team that went down and were on the front line um, doing disaster response and, and um, animal recovery in New Orleans. I came back after that and, and definitely had changed my perspective. And that was kind of where um, kind of some adjustment in professional perspective started to occur. It took a couple of years, but I ended up transitioning out of private practice and getting into um, nonprofit animal welfare and I ended up being the chief medical officer at Seattle Humane, which is a very large, very well-resourced animal shelter. Um, part of my task there or the project there was developing a teaching program with Washington State University. So I had no real intention to end up in academia. It just kind of happened and um, partnered with Washington State and that program was very successful. And that got me on the radar of uh, our current dean here, uh, Dean Bonnie Rush. And she reached out and said, we're starting a shelter medicine program here at K-State. Would you be interested? And we started some dialogue and, and uh, you know, I ended up here and have been here for seven years uh, developing the program here, so. That's awesome. That's a diversified background. <laughs> kind of an, evol an evolution of, of a career for sure. Absolutely. So um, like we kind of discussed a lot of our audience, a lot of our clients, they're, um, they're private practice owners. Um, yeah. So I want, you know, kind of want to dive into that piece. You know, how did you get started? What did you love about it? What did you hate about it? <laughs> um, give us, you know, a little bit of background on that. How, what was the transition like? Yeah, I definitely, I would say my, um, I certainly wanted to become a veterinarian. You know, I had the perspective that I was going into small animal practice. I never necessarily thought about being a practice owner. Um, it, it, that just kind of occurred. Uh, running the 24-hour facility that I did, um, the emergency medicine practice while I was going through school, certainly set me up for some of the business pieces, um, mm -hmm. which we traditionally don't get a lot of in veterinary school. Um, I think more we get more now or there's more available now than there was when I was in school. Um, but bottom line is we're emphasizing medicine, um, client, patient interaction, all those huge things that we as doctors learn, but there's not a lot of emphasis on being business owner. And luckily for me, my experience running a, a practice basically while I was going through school, I graduated both as a veterinarian, but with a pre- a pretty nice foundation of business management, people, people management and money, understanding the flow in a, in a, in a practice. So it kind of set me up well, uh, both as an associate veterinarian, working with other veterinarians and bringing, you know, something to the table that the random new grad doesn't have. But then when I finally realized that the, the real way to expand the ceiling of earnings for me as a veterinarian was practice ownership, um, I at least had that foundation. I knew, but you know what had to be done to withhold taxes, and um, you know, you know how we develop uh, pay scales, and you know why it was a bad idea to carry um, accounts receivable. Things that you know, random new grad or random veterinarian isn't really set up for. Mm -hmm. So I think that you know it, it was definitely um, it, it didn't come natural. I think that as a business owner, and I think probably a lot of your clients and the, the people watching this podcast can relate, is the veterinary medicine side of things is probably the easiest part of the day. Uh, the business side is probably um, not inherently the, the more natural piece for us as veterinarians. In fact, some of a, a, what makes us really good veterinarians as far as compassion and um, uh, empathy doesn't necessarily line up with being good business owners. Mm -hmm. And so there's, there's sometimes, you know, a, a conflict there mm -hmm. internally on um, being successful in an exam room and being successful um, on, a, on, a, on a profit statement. So um, being able to navigate that and end up being successful at that, I think I, I felt good about that. 
and, and really enjoyed the business end. I enjoyed practice management. I enjoyed um, people and teaching and growing staff members. And I think that's, you know, ultimately when I ended up in academia, I've been teaching our whole career. We as veterinarians teach every day. We're teaching clients. So it, the transition wasn't very difficult, mm -hmm. um, but it wasn't anything that was intended by any stretch. Um, so that that's kind of me in a in a business sense is running a five doctor practice um, and and enjoying the medicine, but also enjoying the, the business aspect of things. Yeah, I have to say one of my favorite and one of the reasons we picked veterinary um, to work with is because um, y'all are humble enough to know what you don't know you know, or you're humble enough to find experts to help you on the business side. And that's who we work best with is people who are like, I don't know, please help me, right? Come teach me. Um, I just don't know. Um, and I think, and I say this all the time, there's, I didn't know how to run a business until I was running a business. I mean, I worked in public accounting and helped people run businesses. But once I had to run a business, <laughs> right, it's totally different when it's your own business and you're trying to do things in a way that makes sense for you or the way you want to work or the way you want your staff to work. We have a completely different, you know, accounting firm that is than a standard industry standard. We just, that's not how we work. So, but being humble enough to say, I don't know what I don't know is honestly part of the reason we love our veterinarians because they're entrepreneurs, but they also are like, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to do that. I please explain my balance sheet to me. Um, and that's what we love because they're the ones that I can say here, you need to do X, Y, Z. And they're like on it, <laughs> you know, they, you don't need to fight them to get, to get mm -mm. compliance. No, I don't need to fight them to get compliance, but also like we can build that relationship where they can tell me what they want and we can help them get there either through referrals or, you know, we do monthly consultings with the monthly consulting with a lot of our startups and we're looking at their numbers with them month over month so they know what to do and what to you know what their goals are and that's hugely important we have one in texas and he's like jamie i killed my goal again because he said i couldn't <laughs> you know it's like you know are you competitive like you know getting to know them and what motivates them so we can help them go where they want to go because that's the fun stuff you know doing the tax returns is just whatever but yeah, absolutely. Just keep me out of QuickBooks. I'd rather have somebody else doing that. Yes, please. And I, that's when we get a new client and they're like, yeah, so I do my own books. And I'm like, okay, so first thing you have to give me that because I need you to be either working on the business or doing surgeries or dentals or whatever it is that your highest profit mar margin is right now. You need to go do more of those for me so you can pay us. But I'm taking that from you. I don't do my own books because I have I, other I things to do. That's something, you know, when I've coached other, other veterinarians, um, what, forget business, I think it's so important that we recognize what our role is in this, in this, you know, whatever endeavor and, and maximize that. I think so often veterinarians maybe want to be involved in, in everything. And it's so important to have veterinarians doing veterinary things having um, licensed veterinary technicians and veterinary nurses doing what they're trained to do, mm -hmm. having accountants do what they're supposed to be doing. Uh, it's so important that we're playing those roles and that is gonna be so much more efficient and it's gonna raise the bar as far as what your actual production where you're gonna end up if, if we're all aware of what our strengths are and, and play to that instead, mm -hmm. of, instead of getting everybody else's way. Yeah, and I always say for some reason, small business owners, there's like this expectation that everybody can do bookkeeping, but they can't. And like, there's like some shame around not being able to do it, which I'm always just like, do you want me doing dentals? Cause I could try. I'm actually pretty savvy. We could probably try it, but, uh, no, I would hand my animal to you and you would do the thing. Like I wouldn't be back there being like, well, let me just, you know, I'll handle the anesthesia, okay? <laughs> well, I've even managed some hospitals where, you know, oh, we really want to run that, that lab work in-house. And mm -hmm. some businesses, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. But when you hit a certain size, it's, it's actually better to maybe outsource lab work and do some of those things that you traditionally would do internally, send that out, and, and explaining to those business owners that 
from a from a, a cost uh, efficiency standpoint, uh, well, and and accuracy standpoint, does it make more sense to have your veterinary nurse run uh, fecals intermittently throughout the day, maybe a half dozen of them throughout the day, and doing it that way, and and have it be internal? Or for that same cost, the really only expenses that you won't get results until tomorrow, you send those fecals out to somebody else and the person reading those fecals, uh, that's all they do every day is look at, is look at fecals. Mm -hmm. They're going to be more accurate at it. And you know what? Your internal staff is probably happy as anything to not have to look at that poop. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, sometimes we as business owners, we as veterinarians are reluctant to let some of that go. Yeah. Yeah. And I always, I always like, I'm always like straight up, I'm not cost adverse and I'm not debt adverse because a lot of our costs and our, a lot of our debt gives us the ability to go make more money. <laughs> so, you know, if you tell me you have, you know, you're going to ask me about your cash flow and you're like, I have an associate vet that I know is going to produce, I'm going to say, make it happen. Like, we're not going to be like, oh no, there, there are costs. We're going to be like, no, they produce more than they cost. Um, uh, my, uh, the gentleman who was the president of the AVMA at the time gave my graduation speech, um, oh, years wow. ago and, um, I, I, I'm, I'll miss it a little bit, but I'll paraphrase. And he said, congratulations, you're graduating into one of the most amazing professions ever. Um, you have, uh, a certain level of indebtedness you have these school loans and you're graduating, congrats. And that degree is gonna let you go get a job and, and, and generate revenue so you can um, get a car loan and buy a house and then become a practice owner and maybe a partnership and own that practice. And so the debt load that you currently have is just a small percentage of the debt load that you're gonna generate. Um, but your revenue and your ability to generate profit and, and be that successful veterinarian is because of that degree and congratulations. You have just enabled yourself to get in greater debt, but also um, participate in one of the best professions ever. And I was like, that. oh yeah, it's pretty accurate. It is really accurate because the banks are like, oh, you're a veterinarian. How much would you like? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and they come to me, I, we work with a lot of startup startups. I'm like, Jamie, how much do I need? I'm like, the bank knows how much they're going to lend you. You ask the bank because they know, <laughs> they know what your build out costs are going to be. They have the formulas and the stuff. You tell me how much you're going to get and we'll figure out how to make it work. So, you know, it's like the bank knows and the bank's not worried. You know, every, everybody I've ever talked to internally in the banks is just like, oh yeah, veterinarians, we just sign those. Um, I love it. So you transitioned out of practice ownership after the Katrina thing. So can you talk to us about the Hurricane Katrina? Well, I, well, I, practiced, I transitioned out of private practice after Katrina. I had sold the business, um, my business prior to Katrina. So oh. I was um, had transitioned from private practice to sold to corporate the corporate world, um, as um, a lot of veterinarians are prone to do because they have the ability to bankroll um, uh, large veterinary practices where carrying paper and selling to other practice owners isn't quite as um, attractive mm -hmm. um, if you're selling a business. So I was um, sold the business and I was still working in the corporate side. Mm -hmm. I had, I was overseeing um, four different businesses and kind of an advisory role for um, BC, VCA, um, so our uh, kind of nat national chain. Mm -hmm. So that's where I, I kind of have already transitioned out of practice ownership, but I was still in private practice. So back to your question, does that change your question? Or no, mm -mm. you know, you kind of did a pivot, right? So you were like, well, I'll just work for corporate for a while. Did you have a plan until you did, until you went to Hurricane Katrina and saw that side? I I kind of had a feeling that I was looking for that next step. I think that my private practice, I don't know if it was as um, obvious, but I, I kind of felt like, okay, I've done this. I've been successful at this. Um, I'm kind of doing it and it's working, um, but what's that next step? Mm -hmm. uh, I think there was probably an undercurrent of that, but I hadn't cerebrally and, and, and 
specifically gone, you know what, I'm going to do something different. I'm going to become a tugboat captain or anything like that. It, it, it just kind of happened organically. Mm-hmm. Tugboat captain is my fallback in case this better than anything doesn't work, by the way. I'm just going back to restaurants. <laughs> I'm like, I could go bartend. It's fine. <laughs> I'm going the opposite. You're going, you're going full customer service. I'm going put on a boat, <laughs> pushing a barge to the bear in the Bering Sea, looking at seagulls. That seems much more cathartic. <laughs> That's awesome. I love it. So Hurricane Katrina, tell us about that experience. Yeah, amazing. So I'm working just um, seeing appointments. Uh, one of my former veterinary nurses who rolled out um, who had worked for me for years and came to me and said, uh, Brad, I, I love working here, but I just feel like um, I can have a greater impact and I need to be somewhere else. I need to, I, I feel like I can make a bigger difference doing some somewhere else. And this was about five, six years before Katrina. And I was like, great, go, whatever we can do. And a personal friend of mine, she became an executive director of a nonprofit rescue in the Seattle area. She called our practice and said, hey, we've got an approval to be one of the front end um, rescue groups that are going to be on the ground in New Orleans uh, for the for the hurricane. We're collecting supplies. Um, would you be willing to donate? And she got my lead tech and she came in and said, hey, can we donate stuff to this event? And I would like to go. And I said, absolutely, we can donate. And I want to go. And so my lead tech, myself, and my lead kennel, um, uh, my kennel coordinator, we were three of a group of 14 that went down with this group um, called Posado Safe Haven. And we, we were on the ground basically two days after the levee broke. Oh, wow. And so uh, we had to fly into Houston and rent vans from Houston because that was the closest airport that was open. Um, rent vans and drive in. We were staying at a horse farm um, just outside outside of New Orleans in a, in a town called Raceland. And a, a generous uh, guy said, yeah, you can stay in our barn. Um, and we uh, initiated with HSUS, Humane Society of the United States and Louisiana Animal Rescue. And we were one of three groups that were canvassing the parishes um, and walking day to day in New Orleans, um, pulling animals out. Also worked with HSUS at their disaster response in Gonzales, which was basically a giant fairgrounds that they had set up for evacuation, and that's where animals were being removed to. And, and to reset, um, everybody in New Orleans, it was a forced evacuation. So people, mm-hmm. people had to leave, and they could not bring their pets. And so you have an amazing population of people that had lost everything and were forced to leave their pets behind. And um, the tragedy there was amazing. And so we worked at um, the Gonzalez site. I worked with um, a really a national group called the VNAP team doing intake at the Gonzalez site um, as they pulled animals off. And then we were also in the field um, in New Orleans. Uh, and basically what happened was after about um, seven days, that Gonzalez site with HSUS filled up with animals. Um, they hit about or 5,000 animals, and they said, we can't take any more in. And our group was out in the field, and we had two vans full of rescue animals, about 40 animals, and they they said, we are are not taking them. And we were like, okay, oh, what do we do? So about a 35-minute drive to to the horse farm that we were staying in, and we said, well, let's reach out to this gentleman that owns the horse farm. His name was Louis St. Jean. Let's reach out to Lewis and see if we can set up a rescue. Yeah, if we can set up a rescue in his barn. And um, in the meantime, my tech, myself, and my kennel attendant came up with um, intake triage, treatment, how do we handle the dogs um, start and cats starting with overnight, set up process and procedure. And basically, we set up a um, remote rescue facility at this barn that operated for 10 weeks and we moved about 1400 animals through that site um, with amazing, you know, reunions and um, 
it ended up being just an absolute uh, life altering experience for me mm -hmm. um, to be able to be on the ground and do that and help the people that we helped. And again, I can tell just amazing stories about okay. that. Um, the people human animal bond stories um, that came out with that. And I ended up going back to Seattle and um, certainly my perspective was a little bit um, changed. Um, it was highly publicized what we did in the Seattle area. We evacuated Louisiana dogs to Seattle for holding before we could get them to their regular owners. That, of course, was on the news. So I was put on the radar with local government agents, um, was asked to do some consults with municipal shelters and city shelters in the Seattle area, and then ultimately was recruited to the private nonprofit Seattle Humane. Um, so I wouldn't be ultimately, um, if it wasn't for that employee of mine reaching out to me and, and um, soliciting us for donations, um, me going to New Orleans, I don't see how I would be in animal welfare and I probably would be here in case, at K-State teaching. So I, I blame that individual. Um, and <clears throat> it wasn't really until I got back and started um, assessing that I really understood what she said five, six years previous in that, okay, I need to go do something else um, where I can have a greater impact. Mm -hmm. And I think after Katrina, that's been kind of the core of, of what makes me tick and, and has driven my decision-making and is why here I'm here at K-State is there's no place else where I can uh, have, have the autonomy and the resources to develop a program that impacts veterinary students, that impacts animal shelters, um, that impacts uh, communities that are in need and don't have access to care. Uh, there's no place else where I can have that kind of impact. And so this is the right place and the right time for me. And it all comes back to that statement that I didn't get initially, but that I ended up getting eventually on where can I go and have as big an impact as possible for me as a veterinarian um, for me as a human where can I go and, and do good things so awesome. and, and, and you deal with veterinarians every day we are uniquely situated to do things that nobody else can do we as veterinarians have an amazing job um, whether you're in private practice whether you're in field service work whether you are in shelters mm -hmm. whatever you're doing as a veterinarian we impact um, humanity in so many ways. So we should be proud to be veterinarians regardless of our role. Veterinarians are some of my favorite people. Like you guys are just all like, no, that was great. That was great. So let's talk about the current program at K-State and what you guys are doing with the shelter me um, medical program, the shelter medicine program, um, and then the community outreach. Yeah. So the foundation program when I came here originally was um, very surgery based. Um, our goal was uh, ultimately uh, certainly to make more practice ready veterinarians. That's certainly what we do as a university. How do we graduate veterinarians that can go into a private practice and be an asset right out of the gate? And one of the weaknesses that we saw for veterinarians is just their surgical experience was lacking. And so my goal with this program was to come in, um, get repetitive surgical experience with students, but do it in a community outreach kind of way. And so from the get-go, what we did was we have a mobile surgery unit. We partner with um, animal shelters and animal welfare organizations across the region. And I bring students out. I have fourth-year students for a two-week two rotation, and we provide free uh, uh, medical triage. So we go through the shelter and look at medical cases and advise them on, on really what direction they should take. Um, but, but really the big foundation is, is surgical skills, is we provide free surgical uh, services to those shelters that don't otherwise have the capability to do that. And so um, my students end up averaging about uh, 40 to 50 surgeries in a two-week period of time that they wouldn't be getting if they didn't come through the program. Our community shelters are getting those surgeries done for free, so they're able to adopt out um, uh, animals that already have surgery. And if they are paying their local veterinarian to provide those, those surgeries, what it does is it 
um, removes that financial piece from, from the um, shelters and are able to still pay those dollars to their community veterinarians, but for higher, higher level care. Mm -hmm. so what we see is instead of paying a veterinarian to take table time to do discounted spays and neuters, they're able to pay that veterinarian for heartworm care or amputations or medical that. workups. And so everybody wins in that scenario. Um, the bar of care to those animals goes up, the dollars going to private, private practice stays the same, the level of adoptions um, goes up and our students get amazing experience. And so that was the core foundation of the program that we started seven years ago. We've done about 30,000 surgeries over those seven years. Wow. And um, it has been the most popular course at K-State with our veterinary students. Certainly um, we know that uh, surgery is the hook. We get students that want to do this because they want surgical experience. And I always tell them, yes, you're going to get surgical experience and we're going to force feed you animal welfare for two weeks while you're on the rotation. You're going to learn more about the challenges in animal shelters, the challenges of uh, limited resource medicine. And um, the goal is for them to graduate and have a better appreciation for some of those challenges. And if they're more likely to volunteer at shelters, once they graduate, then we're, then we're winning. Um, um, but that is the goal of that original program. And I think it's been hugely successful and popular. And we've gotten you know, plenty of feedback from our private practice um, clients that are seeing those students roll out and get hired. And they're like, oh, we can tell they've mm -hmm. had 50 to 55 surgeries that Auburn graduates are not getting. I love that. And it gives them a foundation of just basic wellness. You know, like you can, you can, you can say, well, this is, you know, this is what basic wellness looks like, but they're really doing it. And and I always say that our veterinarians are scrappy, right? Y'all are scrappy. You can, you know, you're, you're the MacGyvers of medicine a lot of the time, but they really are, you know, getting the, uh, the ability to, to use those skills and to, you know, probably go through problems and they get to do those surgeries, which I find fascinating. Um, you know, they're learning. Um, not to undermine it, but we're at a veterinary teaching hospital. So a lot of the cases they're dealing with are cases that community veterinarians have already seen and have punted. They're mm -hmm. like, no, you know what, we're sending this. So they're seeing all the unique things, but it definitely skews their perspective of what private practice is. When we're in an animal shelter, we're seeing in high volume the very things that they're going to see in a high volume once they get in that exam room across the table from a client. They're gonna see skin conditions. They're gonna see lameness. They're gonna see dental issues. They're gonna see all those things common that they're gonna to have to deal with day one once they graduate. And we're better preparing them um, for that, to be um, uh, quality veterinarians uh, when they land wherever they land. So, uh, that's actually um, really, I, I, go ahead. That's actually really interesting. So I actually went to Colorado State University um, and my, yeah. my my parents have had animals that were punted to CSU um, and, and to their veterinary program. And it never really, that never really clicked for me that like, that's what the veterinarian students get to see is those high level, very intricate cases, not that, you know, the more routine day-to-day -day stuff. So that's, it's actually really interesting that never really clicked for me before, but it does now. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard as a veterinary student, because unless you're on the ground and seeing these things, whether you're, you know, spending some time in private practice or you're actually on the ground when you're going through school, for instance, I, I liken it to, if you look at your dermatology book, if you look at your book that, you know, the, what, what the students get, they've got this, you know, three pages on, uh, on an immune mediated disease that they'll maybe see three times in a career. And they've got um, three pages on flea allergy dermatitis. Well, if you take the number of pages dedicated in this book to the importance of that disease, those would be equal, right? Mm -hmm. Except that one you see three times in a career, the other you're gonna see three times a day. <laughs> and so unless you're aware of that, unless you have that experience and kind of can navigate through your mind on, okay, what is really important here? What can I look up later? And what do I need to know now? Mm -hmm. The only way to do that is actually be on the ground and see it. I love that because they're creating that standard of care in those two weeks, right? So they're really understanding what, what are we going to see all the time and what's, a, what's an important standard of care when we are in practice? 
Um, you know, obviously we're doing this band neuters, that's super important, but what do we see and what do we need to build into those standards of care for all of our patients? The other thing that we're emphasizing, certainly when we're dealing with nonprofits, is they don't always have the resources to be able to practice at the level that we're teaching, you know, gold standard. Mm -hmm. And we want students to be able to know this is the ideal way to do things. But we also want students to be able to recognize that day one, when they get in practice, they're going to make recommendations. And that client is going to say, that sounds great, doc, but I can't afford that. And we need those students to be able to still advocate for that pet, still be a good doctor, still generate revenue, still end up you know, retaining that client. We need them to be able to be able to um, pivot and be able to show that there's a spectrum of care and I can be successful regardless of what the resources are. Being able to go into a nonprofit and say, okay, I recognize we're not doing CTs on all of these animals, but how are we going to deal with this lameness? Mm -hmm. How are we going to deal with this medical condition? Those are skills that are applicable post-grad. Those are skills that these students need when they land in private practice to be able to be as successful as possible. Like if they that. if they have a if their practice window and their success is 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 only in this in this you know small uh, a pie then it's really going to alleviate a lot of clients and they're not going to be able to be as successful as they could be. Yeah, I love that. I like I liken it to like my tax classes um, in college, which was like, here's this multi-million dollar C corporation. I have never in my life done a multi-million dollar C corporation. It's like everything has to be like big four and I never went to big four. So what I see, I had to learn because it is that smaller, you know, what do we do? What are the, what are the baselines? Yeah, you're know. dealing with veterinarians that, that are just counting things wrong. <laughs> yeah. Look, if you can't count, I can't help you. <laughs> okay, you're, you're dealing with veterinarians that are putting things in the wrong column. Yeah, well, that happens. And that's why we, you know, that's why we're the abundant beans. We just got to get those beans in piles. I always say counting isn't math, it's beans in piles. So which pile does it go in? And why is it wrong? Why is that the wrong pile? Um, I want to ask you a couple questions about, you know, how does somebody whose focus has been on private practice, if they're listening to this, I want just a few of your biggest tips for how do they how do they balance animal welfare um, and their desire for that with their private practice? Like what are the, what are the best places they can make an impact? Um, I think it really depends on where your practice is. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I guess I'm going to, I'm going to tell a story and then, and then tell me if you, how much more you want. Okay. Um, I had a student come through. It's one of, one of my favorite student stories. This is a, a large animal guy. He came into our class up front saying, look, I'm, I'm a cow-calf guy. I'm going to be in, in a large animal practice. I am only taking this course to get better hand skills so I'm a better surgeon. And we're like, okay, we can work with that. We talk about how, um, uh, with those students, we talk about how uh, moving animals through a shelter is very much like a production animal medicine kind mm -hmm. of process. And mm -hmm. um, it's a little bit different. And we taught him surgery and we're visiting shelters across uh, Kansas. And we were in, we were at a shelter in Emporia, uh, Emporia, Kansas. And this guy is the second week of the rotation where we, is a pretty talented shelter. Um, he's a pretty good surgeon and he's, he's listening to what we're talking about. And um, we're driving back from Emporia and the student says, hey, Dr. Crowery, he goes, I'm not sure where I'm going to take a job yet, but I'm pretty sure it's going to be probably near a town, not too unlike Emporia. How would you suggest I engage a shelter wherever I am to try and help them? And for me, it made me feel so good about what we do. Mm -hmm. um, and my advice to him was to say, look, if you're in, if you're interested and there's animal well, there's an animal welfare organization, you as a veterinarian have a unique skill set. But we don't really, they don't really know. You don't, you can't predict what they need. So the best thing you can do is engage that animal welfare organization. Go in and say, hey, I'm Dr. So-and-so. I'm interested in helping you. How can I help? Mm -hmm. And they may need help 
uh, cleaning kennels. Um, they may need help having a doctor walk through once a week over your lunch hour and doing medical triage, or they may need help with somebody coming in and helping them out with surgery, or they may need help on a board because they really need a veterinarian and a veterinarian's perspective um, on the board level. So my advice here to anybody out there, if they're interested, would be if they wanna engage, engage that animal welfare organization, kind of take assessment on whether this is an organization that you wanna be involved in. And if you do, go in and ask them how you can help because that's gonna be probably the biggest thing. Um, and, it, and maybe they do say they want you to do kennels, um, but eventually they'll figure out what your skill set is and they'll engage you somewhere else. So mm -hmm. I, I would say don't go in with preconceived notions on how you're gonna help. Um, go in and ask them how you can help. I love that. We also are involved with Project Vets. I don't know if you know them, but what they do is they supply animal welfare groups all over the world. Um, so one of the things we recommend our veterinarians do in practice is just have a very like specific way that they donate, you know, they go through their inventory or whatever. And as they're, you know, cause they'll take a lot of equipment that ex that's expired. They'll take items that are expired. They'll take, you know, they take a lot of things from human med, vet med, just really everything. Um, is just to be very specific about when you're doing your inventory counts or whatever, you know, if you're pulling this stuff that's expired, stick it someplace and get it sent over to Project Vets, which is actually here in Boulder, Colorado. Um, and it could go next door or it could go to Africa. They have, you know, they, that's what they do is they provision, they provision animal welfare all over the world. So there's ways to also impact without having to do your time, you know, maybe it's like two yeah. or three hours of your vet nurse's time a month. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, you could start that wherever you are, if you're an associate, if you're, you know, if it's your practice, like that can be done really anywhere because everybody has supplies they can't use for whatever reason um, or equipment. Don't let them take the equipment out the door. Make sure if it's in still working condition, it could probably be donated. Yeah. And I would definitely say organizations like that, where you can focus that and, and you know, it's getting applied appropriately, I think is very important. So often we see organizations and a lot of times it's small towns like veterinarians, these are all expired and they just purge that on the shelter. Well, some of that may or may not be useful. And also you want to make sure that it's, it's, it's being used appropriately. So, right. Um, I think that, yeah, I, I would say making sure that if we're doing things as veterinarians and donating expired meds or equipment or whatever, that it's going through proper channels and we know how that's being um deploy. Mm -hmm. No, I love that. And I think Project Vets has, you know, they have lists about what they take and like they'll get requests from some of their affiliated and then they're like going out to their donators and they're like, do you have a this machine? You know, so we can get it to the Congo or whatever. It's, so it's very interesting to me how they get these things around too. Um, and if you're going through, go ahead. Go ahead. So oh, they take it another place. Yeah. So the, uh, another thing the project vets will do is if they have, you know, donors or whatever that are traveling, they'll hand them like a suitcase of stuff. <laughs> They're like, oh, you're going to Mexico. Can you take this to this shelter for us? Or at least right. take it to the airport and they'll pick it up. Um, you know, they, they get scrappy about how they get things delivered too, which is really, yeah. it's a really interesting organization. All right. Um, I think honestly, that's all I had for you. Anything else? Nice. No, is that, is that okay? Yeah, that was great. I love, I love that. I think, you know, I love talking about obviously the business pieces because that's the fun stuff, but how do we make an impact? Cause I think we get kind of all stuck in like what kind of impact we want to make instead of being able to just be like, how can I help? Do you need me to go buy cat food? Like what needs to happen and what are your needs? Yeah. Do we still have time? Can I talk community outreach? Yes, please. Let's talk about community outreach. Yeah. Sorry, I sidestepped it. Where we, um, because the, I think there's huge opportunity there. And, mm -hmm. and um, being a private practitioner for uh, years, uh, I just want to say we as private practitioners do an amazing job of giving back to the community. 
Um, and unfortunately, I think that more and more, whether it's social media or whatever, I think sometimes uh, private practice can take a bad rap from certain segments as far as um, just being concerned about the money, not necessarily being empathetic, not giving back. And the reality is um, we as private practitioners do a hell of a good job um, giving back to communities. Mm -hmm. um, I, when we look at um, uh, communities across the country, there are significant um, portions of society that doesn't have access to care for one reason or another. Either it's dollars, um, either it's knowledge, not knowing what proper care is, or it's physical access being in a place that they're, they're not, they don't have a veterinarian. Um, where animal welfare is currently going is it's it, definitely animal welfare is expanding kind of the umbrella of what we're doing from just shelter animals and homeless animals to recognizing that there's a population of animals out there that don't have access to care. Um, I think that it is, the number is staggering when you look at, at, at just numbers of um, uh, people that are living under the poverty level and how many pets they have. Um, we as a veterinary community um, can't really just turn our back on those. Mm -hmm. I mean, part of our responsibility is saying, hey, how do, we, how do we make sure that we're getting basic care or we recognize and educate them what basic care is? And I think animal welfare is where animal welfare is going is saying, hey, how do we start to provide access to care there? And that's one of our programs is uh, community outreach and recognizing that uh, people that are experiencing homelessness or at threat of homelessness, they have pets too, and we need to make sure that those pets are getting proper care. Um, I think it is not the responsibility of private practice to carry that burden. Mm -hmm. I don't think private practice is set up to carry that burden. No. Um, I think animal welfare that is private, private uh, funded, that you know, nonprofit funded, has, is uniquely situated to take that on. Mm -hmm. um, and I think what it does is it, it affords another opportunity for um, animal welfare nonprofits to engage and partner with private practice to be able to get maybe some of those uh, populations served. And in turn, the hope is that we generate new clients through that. Um, that's best case scenario. Worst case scenario, we're getting, say, 30 million animals in the U.S. that are living in households under the poverty level, we're at least getting them care that they should, that they should um, be able to access. And the 30 million is, is accurate if we take the number of families that are living SNAP or below, and we take that number and multiply it by the number of families that have pets, and the average number of pets per household, it's right about 30 million animals. So we as a veterinary community, if we're like, if you can't afford a pet, you shouldn't have one. The reality is there's 30 million out there already that, mm -hmm. that are in that situation. That's way too many. Even if we are the most giving uh, private practice in the world, we're not going to be able to properly address that. Mm -hmm. So that's where animal welfare is going. And I think there's huge opportunity from the animal welfare side to generate nonprofit dollars, but to be able to engage our for-profit um, uh, veterinary community to help raise the bar of care there. And, and what we're doing here at K-State, that's an arm of the program that we are developing, is I'm taking students um, into and partnering with organizations that are uh, providing care to both pets and people. We're looking at health approach, so we're partnering with uh, nurse practitioners, KU Medical, uh, um, um, uh, uh, food banks, uh, homeless shelters, and going in and saying, all right, how do we provide uh, care to the pets of people in those communities, but also engage the people in those communities to try and help them get out of their situation? How do we help them uh, with uh, mental health, health counseling, with diabetes counseling, with substance mm -hmm. abuse counseling? Oftentimes when we engage the pet, this is a very, you know, many of the, 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 the uh, segments of society I'm talking about are very suspicious of engagement, but if you can talk to them about the pet and how important it is maybe to get the pet spayed, neutered, and vaccinated, all of a sudden that's the lubricant to, to get them help as well. And so that's where we're going right now. That's where animal welfare is headed. And it's really important, I think, that 
um, our veterinary community realizes that that's happening. And, you know, it's not like there's not a permission granted. It's, hey, do you want to come along and you want to help out? And if not, that's fine. Mm -hmm. But that's going on. And I think that we're introducing students to that. So I think our, our community practitioners are going to get students that are getting acclimated and introduced to some of that. Um, and, and how does that get processed? I don't know. It's exciting for me to be in an aspect of veterinary medicine that is evolving so rapidly and is able to do so much good. I'm circling back to how do you have an impact and how do you maximize that? Mm -hmm. And that's where we're kind of going right now here at K-State. I love, and I always say like vet med has like that extra layer, right? We have patients, but we also have pet parents, right? So they, you have to balance the care of both of those aspects. Um, and, I, and I just find it like, it's unique, right? It's a unique situation where you're dealing with animals that can't talk, but they also are very important to their people, right? And you have yeah. to- you have to balance the needs of both of them, right? And I love that it's like, when we support the animals, then we're supporting their people. And then we have the ability, because they see that we care about their animals, they might talk to us or we might be able to also resource them. Um, and I love that. The other thing I we talked about kind of before we started was, you know, we are seeing global climate change, which creates more disasters. And that yeah. oh, creates yeah. more need for, you know, the hurricane, hurricane Katrina level. How do we, you know, how do we resource those animals? Um, and how do we, how do we create? And for me and my practice owners, it's like, how do you create a place where you can be like Dr. Cryer and go to Katrina, you know, go to those places and have the, the stability in your practice to, to go do that. Yeah. Well, I think it's it, it's front and center. Not it's not just how do I go somewhere and help. Mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of times um, since Katrina, we've developed. Um, it's been front and center with civic um, leaders. Is how do we develop a disaster response plan for municipalities mm -hmm. and veteran and and it's become more. It's been so clear that animals are a big part of that, and engaging veterinarians in those communities is such a part of that. The example I'll use is that, you know, we, we recognized, FEMA recognized the failures of Katrina and subsequently now a lot of our disaster, many of our disaster response uh, shelters include um, both uh, evacuees and their pets, mm -hmm. which didn't happen before Katrina and was one of the major problems in Katrina is you have people refusing to evacuate because they couldn't take their pet. Well, that, that drove home, hey, we need to change how we're doing these things. As veterinarians, I think there's lots of opportunities for us to, we have a unique, like I said, a unique skill set to be deployed, but we need to be cognizant of what our role is locally. Mm -hmm. If you are in um, Kansas City and there's something horrible going on in Kansas City, well, you know what? You're probably not going to be the focal place. You, you, your priority is your, your family and your pets. It's going to be, it's going to be, um, Manhattan or Lawrence or, you know, it's going to be those communities that are outside that disaster area that have to be prepared um, to be able to respond and be um, willing to take on those animals that are moving out of wherever that disaster is, whether it's fire or flood or, or whatever. So I think we all need to be prepared that, okay, I need to be ready if there's something bad that happens in my community, how do I respond to that? Mm -hmm. But I also need to be, we as veterinarians need to recognize, um, okay, we've got hospitals, we've got boarding facilities, we've got the ability to volunteer, and it's probably not our community, but it's a couple communities over. Mm -hmm. And so we're part of the disaster response plan for our neighboring communities, because those people need to get out and they need a resource to go to. And I think that that's really important for us as business owners, as natural caregivers, that, that we're open to say, yeah, you know what? Um, I'm shutting down the doors. I'm not taking in our, our local boarding people because I've got evacuees that I can help coming from 200 miles away. Yeah, I think that's really important. Especially, I mean, the fires up in the Pacific Northwest, I'm sure the Seattle shelters were full. Yeah, yep, exactly. That's really interesting. It's a very, and you're right. I think before Katrina, like I didn't understand 
like the animal aspect, right? Because I think that became very, very front and center. Like you said, it became very clear that, you know, that aspect wasn't taken care of. Um, my stepmom actually had a Katrina kitty. She actually just died, um, but they got her, they adopted her. She was, she came out of Katrina at some point. Um, and, you know, it just, you know, because we had all these people with like Katrina animals appear in the Denver area, you know, they're like, yeah, I came from Katrina. Like it just it really didn't click that there was, you know, all these animals that basically were left behind because they weren't allowed to be taken with them. Um, and maybe they weren't able to be reunited. Maybe, I mean, just their families were never found. Like that's a huge issue trying to reunite all these animals with their families. It's nuts. It was, it was crazy. And, and yeah, a lot never got reunited. Um, many did. Uh, it, 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 it was just a great experience, but yeah, it absolutely drove home. And I think a lot of what we do, whether it's on the animal welfare side, but on the human side, I think a lot of what we do, how we structure disaster response was based on um, recognizing the failures um, of Katrina and saying, all right, how do we make sure that doesn't happen again? How can we make that better? And isn't that what we should be doing as humans every day is kind of assessing huh, what worked today and what didn't? And how do I maximize what worked and minimize what didn't? I, I think that that seems like uh, that's a worthwhile endeavor for us to kind of reflect as often as possible. Yeah, I think it also highlights, you know, how important the animals are to the human experience and the way, I mean, our culture is like, I know different than other cultures and how they, you know, how they see animals, but I just find it very interesting, you know, how like ingrained, you know, animals are in our families, you know, that's just part of this culture and their welfare is important to the people. And it's, yeah, and it's evolved so fast. I do a lecture on um, the evolution of animal welfare. And part of what I do is, is just walk through the role of the dog and how it's, and, and how we've treated them just over the last like 40 years. Mm -hmm. So 40 years seems like a long time, but it's really not. Um, and, and I do it in cartoon dogs. So if we look at say the seventies, you've got Snoopy, right? Snoopy doesn't talk, but he's, Buds with Charlie Brown, he sleeps outside on top of his um, doghouse, and his best friend is a bird um, and, and doesn't talk, right? That, that was the 70s dog mm -hmm. um, in cartoon. Then we go to like the 80s, and you've got Scooby-Doo. So Scooby-Doo is like a right-hand guy. He kind of emotes. He doesn't really talk, but he's part of the team, but he's still the dog, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then we go to today, the 90s, we've got Brian and Family Guy. I was going to say Family Guy. <laughs> who's, basically, who's basically a person in a dog body drinking martinis and hitting on women. Mm -hmm. um, that's how we've perceived our pets and how it's evolved. And it's happened pretty rapidly. And we as veterinarians need to be aware of where that role is, where pets are. And, and the reality is, is we as veterinarians profit from that because mm -hmm. people because people care so much about the pets that's what drives our business if they didn't it, it would be a hardship for us the human mm -hmm. animal bond what we rely on to be successful so promoting that and continuing to promote that should be at the forefront of what we do as a business that's really interesting i mean i grew up with you know a bunch of dogs shelties and you know the I'm 42. So that was like literally my lifespan. Um, you know, like the dogs were dogs. I mean, my, you know, they were more dog than now we have a kitten or we have a cat. And like, I was trying to talk to her this morning and she was giving me attitude. And I was like, Oh, you're mad at me. Okay. Silent treatment. Like <laughs> we put all these personifications on our animals and I was like, okay, well, let me know where you're not mad at me. I don't know what I did, but <laughs> you know, treats, how about treats? You know, we care about do they interact with us? Do they still love us? Like, you know, you know, we have feelings and how they feel is important to how we feel. Yeah. We celebrate their birthdays. We cook for them. We mm -hmm. consider them part of the family. Mm -hmm. um, well, I'm going to share a little. I recently adopted uh, a dog uh, about uh, right around November, right around Thanksgiving. His name is Clark. He's a, um, the most gorgeous, uh, adorable pit bull. And um, he has his own Facebook page. And so my wife was like, 
okay, now, now you're that guy now. And I'm like, that guy? That guy that has his dog has his own Facebook page. And I'm like, well, yes, of course. You're on the wrong platform. It needs to Facebook. be Instagram or TikTok. He's got Instagram too. Okay. <laughs> Instagram and Facebook. <laughs> There's these two cats on TikTok, on TikTok that I love. Uh, Zelda and Morty. They're the best. You know, like we're watching whole, like I have like a whole page of like people voicing over cats. <laughs> it's just like in, extremely entertaining to us. That's where we are. That's, that's where we are as a society. And you're welcome, Better Any Community. Yeah, you're, right. You're one that's working for us, right? I love it. Thank you so much for your time today. It was so very fun. You are welcome. I enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening or watching. Be sure to subscribe on YouTube, iTunes, or wherever you prefer to listen. If you learned something and found some useful information to apply to your business today, please consider giving us a thumbs up and a review. Until next week, be abundant. Be abundant.